0: unlock the power of your mind this is provocative enlightenment with Elvin Taylor Welcome and thank you for joining us today the next hour is devoted to learning something more not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax but about how what and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, you're invited to join our chat room by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. My partner, Ravinder, is in the chat room now and she's waiting for you. It's a great chat room, so get on over there. In this week's Spotlight, I would once again like to visit the idea of civility in our society. My lifetime has never seen a divide in America as deep as it is today. People no longer seem to listen to one another. Instead, they meet opposing views as though they were threatened with a violent confrontation. I sometimes think of this inability to hear another out, as a form of social narcissism, in that everyone has their own opinions, beliefs, and so-called truths, and they're exclusive to all else. Indeed, folks can be so invested in their private perspective as to be affronted by anyone who might disagree in the slightest with them. Narcissism is defined as extreme selfishness with a grandiose view of one's own views, talents, and a craving for admiration. Think about just how selfish it is to ignore the views of others, to cut people off mid-sentence, or to jump down someone's throat as soon as they say something you disagree with. Steven Pinker, in his book The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature, has this to say about human conflicts. It has been given to express all the principal constants of conflict in the condition of man. These constants are fivefold. The confrontation of men and of women, of age and of youth, of society and of the individual, of the living and the dead, of men and of gods. The conflicts which come of these five orders of confrontation are not negotiable. Men and women, old and young, the individual and the community or state, the quick and the dead, mortals and immortals, define themselves in the conflictual process of defining each other. I would like to suggest that there appears to be yet another basic conflict, and that is of ideas. And it's not between men and women, or the young and old, society and the individual, the living and the dead, or even the gods. It is a conflict between rational and ignorant civility. In fact, just this past week, I overheard a politically passionate young man Defend calling out Trump's supporters in public places, calling them out in front of their families and everyone else since they were obviously Nazis. And Nazis deserve to be identified and humiliated even if it leads to violent actions like spitting. Research has demonstrated that the best way to communicate with another person begins by hearing them out fleshing out their thoughts and ideas. Only when you understand another's thinking do you stand a chance at communicating with them, let alone presenting an alternative to their thinking. If you want to change the hearts and minds of others, you must first truly listen, not shout, cajole, and condemn. I ask, what's the harm in listening to another's perspective? It seems to me that the purpose of communication is communicating, not shouting, name-calling, or some other form of abusive ignorance. If you wish to shout, go to a ball game and yell your heart out in support of your favorite team. If you wish to communicate, to understand another, then begin by truly listening. As I view many of the posts on social networking platforms, the polemical remarks on both sides of arguments never cease to disturb me. I urge anyone who participates in vitriolic rants to pause and think about what they're trying to communicate, instead of launching their own invective rants. Those are my thoughts. I love to hear yours. What are yours, Ravinder?
1: You know, I find it really interesting how often we talk about civility these days. It's like it was the type of thing that you took for granted previously, but in the last few years, yeah, it's a constant uh, subject for discussion. I think you did hit the nail on the head, though, when you said the answer is to hear the other person out. You know, when you take the time to hear what someone is saying. Um, they feel respected they're going to talk a lot more you are going to learn more in the process and then you can get a chance of having a discussion I would say the other thing that everyone should do right now is to put judgments to one side I mean people have got all of these judgments and there is lots of name calling and stuff like that that goes on put it all to one side and then discuss the issues themselves What What I find, you know, when I'm doing that with others is that we're actually closer together than you would have thought. So yeah, hear the other person out, put your judgments to one side and ask what the other person means, you know, stop passing a judgment thinking they're just crazy and say, no, there is something in here and I want to find it out.
0: You know, I'm going to ask our guests about this today, but we have very often discussed the kind of cognitive biases that tend to lead people into taking a soundbite or championing a side of an argument or, you know, blindly rushing forward with passionate uh, belief when they they can actually, you know, be holding two mutually exclusive beliefs at the same time. So we have both the cognitive dissonance and the cognitive bias. And, and when we discuss this, we usually think about it in a mental sense. You know, like, well, once you see it, once you take, you know, the, the bias test, the Harvard bias test online, well, you'll become... But what we often forget, I know I often forget, I think of... The book Fantasyland, you didn't really like the book, but in the very opening, he talks about how much emotion is invested in our biases, and I think that's what we need to stop and think about, Uh, and again, I'm going to ask our guest more about this because this is his area of expertise, but okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week's show featured Hillary and We discussed her work and book, Billions Lost. Lois wrote, great show with Hillary. She makes so much sense. I have never understood why we'd ship both jobs and technology abroad, especially to countries we know will steal the technology. Beth wrote, we are certainly learning the dangers of giving up too much information. Red wrote, I'd be interested in hearing any comments on the recent article regarding 1.5 million visa workers. There is a case for some foreign workers and some outsourcing, but the government needs to release the real numbers so that we can have an informed debate. Moving on, Tona wrote, I truly appreciate the materials you have made available to the public. They truly are a blessing to those that seek internal methods, solutions to address physically manifested experiences. And Victor wrote, I just want to express my gratitude to Dr. Eldon Taylor for what he is doing, his amazing work, and profoundly powerful, life-changing products. Well, thank you, Victor. Okay, that's all the time that we're going to take today uh, for letters, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now today's show, Ravinder, this is is a show, you actually took this course, uh, Coursera on um, intellectual humility. Uh, Did you enjoy the course? Did you find it, you know, valuable?
1: Oh, I thought it was a a great course. I think it's something everyone should do, and it is totally free. So all you need to do is go out to Coursera and search for intellectual humility. I did the course because I was tired of all the vitriol in our country right now. You don't have uh, proper conversations. Um, I learned a lot through the course. It's done through the University of Edinburgh, and they just put together really good online courses, so they're not overly difficult overly complex i developed a passion for philosophy doing you know a couple of those courses but yeah i think it's absolutely invaluable and i would highly recommend everyone out there go out and do the course and be part of the change that everyone wants
0: well i've signed up for the course it looks very interesting as you know i i just finished a Kierkegaard course there and i'm impressed with what they do so let's talk about today's show Intellectual Humility with Professor in Church. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Professor Church is an assistant professor of philosophy at Hillsdale College. He was a co-principal investigator on the Intellectual Humility Massive Open Online Course Project at the University of Edinburgh. And he currently is the principal investigator on the Problem of Evil and Experimental Philosophy of Religion Project both projects being generously funded by the John Templeton
2: Foundation.
0: So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Ian Church.
2: Thank you, Eldon, and thank you so much for the kind words uh, about the the course. uh, It's truly an honor uh, to be here with you.
0: Well, it's our honor. Believe me, I, I really enjoyed your book. It was a much broader subject matter than I was anticipating based on what my wife had told me about the Coursera course, um, they should require this, you know, as something that you read right along with the course because it it truly does cover a lot of material um, and it does so in a way that I think appeals not just to somebody, you know, uh, at, at a college level, but it's written it's written so that anyone and everyone... Can appreciate and understand uh, these processes that that bias us, that place us in in situations uh, of arrogance that defile, you know, our own best interest. You heard today's spotlight professor. What are your thoughts on the civility of our times? And what have I got wrong?
2: No, I I think this is a really important issue, and I think you're touching on something that highlights the incredible importance of uh, intellectual humility at this point. Uh, so one of the things uh, that we've been studying in the course um, uh, over the past several years has been the science of intellectual humility. Now, I'm, I'm a philosopher, and I'll, I'll quickly get out of my depth when it comes to the science of it, when it comes to these sort of things. Um, but one of the things that's been really inter- interesting to me is what's called emotional flooding. Uh, and and I find that particularly relevant, uh, especially as I, I, I'm teaching uh, in the classroom. And so what happens with emotional flooding is sometimes someone will be extremely aggressive and angry, right? Uh, so I've taught all sorts of different courses, uh, from modern philosophy to logic to uh, ethical controversies, controversies. And as you can imagine, uh, the, the ethics courses can get quite heated, right? So we're going to be talking about things that are uh, extremely personal and uh, incredibly consequential. And so if, say I'm teaching a class on uh, euthanasia. And a lot of people have some extremely strong views on euthanasia. Well, if, if there's a student in the classroom who expresses those views extremely angrily and is something the table and is obviously visibly angry uh, about it, and and they express their views in such a way so as to completely uh, make it impossible to disagree, because otherwise you're going to be an idiot or uh, you know you, you are, you're obviously not thinking about this correctly. Well, then it seems to me that what what's very common in the classroom is you see uh, students do one of two things: uh, either they will buckle down and just sort of not say a thing and wait for the class to be over with because they don't want to dialogue, right? They don't want to engage with that kind of anger uh, and hate. Or they'll get red-faced and, and start swinging back. And in either case, this is called emotional flooding. People are getting worked up. Uh, they get uh, overwhelmed by their emotions. They feel threatened. And they have a, a fight-or-flight sort of response uh, to the, this threat. And it, But in both cases, whether or not people are refraining from talking about anything or they're lashing out in return, in both cases there's not genuine dialogue going on. Uh, people are just trading blows or they're, they're tuning out, uh, but there's no genuine dialogue. And so one of the things that, w- that was fascinating to me uh, was how we might think about intellectual humility, how we might promote it and try to, um, you know, for example, going back to the classroom, construct an environment that's going to be more congenial to conversation, uh, debate, dialogue, even about things that are really important and really difficult, uh, uh, where people disagree very strongly about. If we can somehow remain congenial uh, with these kinds of conversations, then we'll we'll be much more able to actually have good dialogue.
0: You you know, I I have to ask you, I mean, you've triggered a couple of thoughts here, um, and and I'm going to pursue them, if, if I may. Sure. I recently had a conversation with some students at University of Washington. And the subject was, you know, this whole PC movement, and I wonder if if we're not promoting, in some sense, uh, uh, a form of righteous indignation. Indignation, you know, a form of um, it's okay for you to get emotionally upset about things. Uh, with it, I mean, the PC movement has been about changing a lot, a lot of our language, and and when you do that, of course, if you control the definition, you control the argument. And and as I say, I hear more and more about the sensibilities of people and how it's becoming a normal matter of verbal intercourse to object to something someone says because it offends some sensibility of theirs. Do you think this whole PC thing is a good step? I mean, are we enhancing communication? Or as I see it, are we actually cultivating this uh, let's not think about um conversing intellectually instead you know that that makes me feel bad so let's not talk about it at all
2: yeah so i think uh the sort of movement where we say if, if something's going to make someone uncomfortable then we, we just we should be off the table uh, i think that's a, an enormously problematic stance to take um as i see it an incredibly important part of education is being challenged uh, as being made to feel uncomfortable uh, and trying to work through it uh, working through it with the class with the class uh, with the professor um, but that's an incredibly important part of of education uh, and, and arguably something closer to indoctrination is if you're only ever told what you already think right so if you're never made uncomfortable then that's that's somehow I think uh, going to be antithetical to to education.
0: I couldn't agree more let me let me ask you this uh, before we get into what intellectual humility is. I, I'd, I'd like you to flesh out for us what intellectual arrogance really is. And, 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 I, and I mean in the sense that you do in the book. I mean, uh, not the um, fact of the matter, 2 plus 2 equals 4, but arguably yet the unprovable, because we have so many issues. And they're not just religion. They could be issues. I heard a young man at, at UW last week uh, who believes that infanticide to the age of one is fine uh, because the nervous system isn't hardwired to the brain and uh, and Roe versus Wade is all about the potential of overturn you know and, and it was a very passionate uh, way that he was addressing all of this um, but it also seems to me that you can take just a, a kernel of knowledge. Uh, Like, okay, it's true that our nervous system is not fully wired to our brain until we're a year of age, but what has that really got to do with the issue? Uh, What is intellectual arrogance? Have I got it wrong?
2: Well, yes. I mean, no, no, I don't think you do, and and, uh, it's it's a really complicated question. It's a very good question, and uh, people have been weighing in on these issues um, for the past seven or eight years. Uh, especially in in the academic literature, and and trying to figure out what what the right answer here is, and so different people will will give different answers for what intellectual arrogance is, and I certainly have my own view on that. But let me just sort of sketch a few other possibilities here. So, okay, one of one of the main uh, accounts of intellectual humility and intellectual arrogance uh, is one that sees intellectual arrogance as uh, an obsession with someone with your status. And so if you're obsessed with your, your status amongst your peers and want to make sure that you uh, look the best you can, that you have an sort of extremely uh, well-groomed social media presence, and so on and so forth, so as to you know, make sure everyone thinks you're the best that you that you are, um, then that might be intellectual arrogance on, on this view. And so for, for them, intellectual humility uh, is the, the absence of that. So you might pursue various intellectual projects, uh, not for the sake of your status, not for the sake of how your colleagues might view you or be impressed by you or what sort of accolades you can put on your CV at the end of the day. But you're pursuing various intellectual projects for the, for, the, for the epistemic good themselves, for the sake of truth, for the sake of understanding something. And so that's, that's one account. Um, but another account of intellectual arrogance would be one where someone is completely and wholly uh, unaware of, of their own uh, limitations. Uh, So uh, for one account of intellectual humility is is, is that being intellectually humble is going to be appropriately attending to and owning your limitations, right? So if you are someone who, uh, where your your limitations are always before you, they never leave your sight, as it were, uh, and so you're you're burdened by these sort of things, well, that's not good, that's what what we might call intellectual servility, right? So the complete opposite of intellectual arrogance, you're you're Mm -hmm. self-deprecating and and self-hating. Um, but if you are, like I said, completely oblivious to your limitations, such that they never occur to you, well, then that might be arrogance on this view, intellectual arrogance on this view. So, uh, here, intellectual humility is going to be what's called a virtuous mean that sits between those two, uh, vices, intellectual arrogance on the one hand and intellectual servility on the other. Uh, now, the view that I am particularly attracted to is, um, what I'm calling the doxastic account of intellectual humility. Now, doxastic here just means focused on belief. And uh, so think of you know, humility in general, not just intellectual humility, or, or, or arrogance in general, not just intellectual arrogance. So you might think of, of a humble person as someone who doesn't think too highly of himself. Right? An arrogant person would be someone who thinks that they are the bee's knees, so to speak, and they're amazing uh, when they're when they're not. Uh, But in contrast, a a self-deprecating person, a servile person, might be someone who is self-hating, and that's not good either. So a humble person is going to think about themselves as as they ought. They they will value themselves as they should. Uh, Building off of this kind of of description, we might think that an intellectually humble person is someone who doesn't think too highly or or too lowly of their beliefs. This is, again, the doxastic account. And so uh, if someone is... uh, convinced that all of their beliefs are absolutely watertight, that the evidence is entirely in their favor, that there's an overwhelming amount of justification in favor of their belief, such that there's no way that they could possibly be wrong. Well, if they're wrong about that, then they're going to be profoundly intellectually arrogant on this view. But in contrast, if someone thinks their beliefs are worthless, they're always uh, downtrodden about their uh, the beliefs, they think they're worthless, but when they actually enjoy a tremendous amount of evidence, well then that, that's not good either they're going to be intellectually servile and so uh, those, that's sort of the, the lay of the land uh, as I know it right now uh, when it comes to what sort of different competing definitions of, of intellectual arrogance and intellectual uh, humility
0: I've got to ask this how do, you, how do you recommend and how do you personally deal uh, with the intellectually arrogant
2: well I mean it's it's for me. I, I try to be aware of my own arrogance, right? So try to be aware to the extent that I might be shut off to dialogue, right? um, and and try to uh, monitor my own mental state as best I can. Right? So if I see uh, something online uh, that sort of challenges me, uh, I can be aware of my inclination just to, to turn it off. Uh, to look away and do something else, or or go to another uh, new source that might digest it in a way that's more fitting for my particular uh, leaning. Uh, that that's, I can be aware of that that impulse, and so I think part of part of what we need to try to do is be aware of we that we have these kinds of impulses that we are aware when we feel our heart racing and that we don't want to be challenged, and to just uh, uh, try to work with that, try to challenge ourselves to. To listen to other people um, and to hear them
0: out, in, in part, and I don't mean this in any derogatory way. That that kind of sounds like, well, tune out that source and tune in the source that tells you what you want to hear. Uh, and I don't, I don't think you intend it that way. Um, but but it, you know, it seems like that wouldn't really remedy your ability to communicate with someone. Um, who did hold, you know, um, these hard and fast ideas that uh, made it impossible for you to communicate with. We'll pick this back up after the break, Professor. I'll just ask you that. Uh, We're speaking with Professor Ian Church about his work and book, Intellectual Humility. It is a great read. I think it is a timely read. I believe we should all read this now because we all know communication just isn't happening there's just a lot of sound bites exchanging with one another that that don't make we don't feel good as a result and we don't understand each other uh, it, it just grows worse. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at com. That's one word, I-A-N-Church, dot com. We have a video for you in our chat room defining intellectual humility, so get on over to com forward slash chat. If you're not already there, we'll be right back.
3: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it, until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, my hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your Intertalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to intertalk.com.
2: Unlock the power
0: of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Ian Church about his working book, Intellectual Humility. I'll tell you, it's a book that, uh, again, I'm going to encourage you all to get it. True story. My personal library, my wife's personal library, some 6,000 books. We decided we're going to get rid of many of them that we have read, uh, many that we haven't read but this one is a keeper. This one stays in the library. You'll want to go get the book *Intellectual Humility: An Introduction to the Philosophy and Science* by Professor Ian Church. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at ianchurchoneword.com. All right. Every week, we ask our guests for their favorite music—music music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. It is also a hobby of mine, something I'm doing a book on. So, Professor, you have chosen New Dawn Fades by Joey Division. Yes. Tell us, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are?
2: sure well it, it's a, a very personal song to me and it's a song I, I really uh, enjoy um, uh, it has it's, it's sort of a depressing song um, and I'm someone who has has uh, struggled with depression in the past um, and you know it's a it's a challenging song in terms of trying to wrestle with one's face one of the lines in the song is uh, I've, I've walked on water and I've run through fire but I can't seem to feel it anymore and so that's that's another line sort of um, it resonates with me in terms of my own uh, spiritual uh, struggles and things like
0: that very honest answer thank you uh before the break sir we were uh, discussing social networking and we you, you pointed out that if you see something there you, you know you go away and you look somewhere else or the same with news channels i have a follow-up question on that that i promised and that's in my own mind, it seems that where social networking has many, many positives to it, one of the main negatives seems to be the anonymity that many people gain, um, the posturing that goes on, and how that seems to have actually added to the incivility in our culture. And, and uh, have I got that right? Have I got that wrong? What are your thoughts on it?
2: I think that's exactly right. And I think it gets to the point to where we, we groom our uh, you know, our Facebook feed, say, uh, to only sort of give us the information from people that we already kind of agree with, with on a lot of things. And uh, in the end, we end up sort of talking amongst ourselves, talking about talking amongst people that we already agree with, and we get collectively increasingly outraged at the opposition uh, without any sort of real consideration about what the opposition actually thinks, what they actually believe, uh, because the, the, the amount of vitriol, the, the, the picture of the opposition gets constructed amongst uh, the echo chamber uh, in such a way that it, it eventually starts to come apart from reality. It's no longer at all representing what the opposi- opposition actually believes. And so I think that's right. I think we end up uh, in a situation where we just talk amongst ourselves and we get more and more outraged, uh, and and um, you know, this, this is not certainly going to be conducive to intellectual humility.
0: Yeah, and the outrage, of course, adds to the distortion, more distortion, yep. further adds to the distortion. Yeah. All right. Listen, Professor, on this show, we like to know three things. Who's the messenger, of course? What is the message, and, and how do we use it? It's interesting. I, I know that you're in a, 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 relig- a religious school. What, you know, what are your passions, and what led you to become a philosopher?
2: Well, that's uh, that's sort of a, that's that's a great story, and, and, uh, well, I don't know, it's it's, uh, a good question. We
0: have time, please.
2: Well, so I I became a Christian when I was uh, in high school. Uh, I was invited to a midweek Bible study by a friend, and for a long time I just said no, I I felt like that wasn't the sort of thing that I'd be at all interested in. But then I started going, uh, and uh, eventually I became a Christian, and, at that point, I thought that there was only two ways to be a good Christian. Uh, one would be to be a missionary, uh, going off to some far distant land, uh, or to be a pastor. Uh, now, as it happens, I'm allergic to a lot of the outside world, and so you know, going to, out to the, you know, some distant land seemed like that wasn't going to be a good fit for me. And, um, and so I thought, at that time, the thing for me to do if I'm going to be a serious good Christian is for me to be a pastor. And uh, so I, still in high school, was thinking about seminary uh, and, and uh, getting ready for that. And so I would go to different seminaries and, and ask them, what should I, I'm going to be going to college soon, what should I study in college to be prepared for, for seminary? And they would say different things. Uh, you know, history was fairly common. Uh, but uh, one of the most common subjects they told me to study in preparation for seminary was philosophy. Well, I was already quite interested in, in philosophy, and especially given my, my conversion uh, at that time, it was, it was, I was very interested in, in religious epistemology, so how we can know uh, anything about God, how do we know, uh, you know, what sort of theological truths are, are right, and so on and so forth. And so I was going down that road, looking more and more into religious epistemology, and, and part of that also connected with questions about what kind of critters are we? What, so what is a the, the, the human being? How do we know things at all? be it about God or or anything else. And so, uh, but as I was getting ready to start college, uh, it it was starting to dawn on me that, for one thing, I'm probably not gifted in the right sort of way to be a pastor. Uh, I didn't feel like that was actually going to be a good fit for me, uh, after all. Um, But additionally, that I just loved philosophy for its own sake. Um, And I can still remember my uh, first philosophy class, uh, my professor, uh, Dr. Daphne Roll, And I absolutely loved uh, that class, and it made me fall in love with philosophy, and and really it became um, something I wanted to pursue uh, as its own end, and uh, I haven't really looked back since.
0: Epistemology. What is it we can say we know? And the deeper you get into that subject, the more you discover not a lot for
2: sure, right? That's that's (laughs) right. Well, I I, I actually just got a book called Epistemic Angst that I'm looking forward to uh, reading. It's... uh, Uh, You know, there's a worry. I mean even talking about heuristics and biases, all the ways that our our human cognition can be overwhelmed by emotion. That can be kind of a troubling realization. And so uh, sometimes doing work in epistemology means uh, realizing just how leaky a ship that we're actually in. And And
0: the more you look at the findings in neuropsychology today, you discover that, you know, Most of our thinking is coming out of our subconscious, right? And our consciousness is simply a 2020 hindsight rationalizing why we do things. That's right. Uh, And all you know, it it becomes very complicated. But I can't think of a passion. I mean, to me, I I share your love for philosophy because it is really the ultimate discovery of who we are. If we don't go down that path, we're ignoring that question altogether. Ooh, so what made you become interested in intellectual humility? Did you run into some arrogant this, that, or the other? Or was it a matter of like, you know, some things, as you point out in your book, you can argue about and get to facts. Right. Some yeah. things, there isn't a hard answer. You know, the right to lifers have no hard answer any more than you know those people on the opposite side and where religion is concerned you
2: know
0: hard answers are really tough to get to is that what led you into intellectual humility what what's the story there
2: that's certainly part of it i mean it's one of the questions that i've been really interested in is is whether or not you can have uh, firm religious conviction uh, in the face of all this pluralism right? all this disagreement about religion can you maintain firm religious conviction and still be considered intellectually humble. And I've, I've tried to argue in various places that, that, that it is theoretically possible, but we have to be very careful not to sort of, uh, just sort of I don't know, pave the way towards an unreflective kind of dogmatism. But I, I do want to say that that is theoretically possible. But one of the other things that, that drove me to intellectual humility was the sort of philosophical journey I was, I was going on anyway. So, I, as I said, I was initially interested in religious epistemology. Uh, and eventually, that sort of evolved into an interest in what's called um, virtue epistemology. So, uh, the one of the distinguishing features of virtue epistemology is that uh, it sees the agent uh, as a an important part of uh, epistemic evaluation. Right, the epi- the the agent or the community of agents as an incredibly important and an essential part of how we know things. We have to factor in the 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 person, and so. As I was thinking about religious epistemology, I started thinking about what kind of critters are we. Well, now I'm sort of on my way toward thinking about virtue epistemology. Well, that's what I wrote my doctoral thesis on, is, is virtue epistemology and analysis of knowledge. And uh, as I finished up uh, with uh, my, my graduate work, I was looking at the job market. And uh, you know, as it happened, both, both my parents uh, got their PhDs in psychology, and I wanted to be the, the black sheep of the family and, and studied philosophy and stuff. I was wanting to push against psychology quite a bit. Uh, but lo and behold, my very first job was uh, in a graduate school of psychology, at, at the Fuller Graduate School of Psychology. And uh, the reason I was hired there, they had this project on the science of intellectual humility. And intellectual humility at that time was a relatively new field uh, within the, the academic uh, literature, certainly within philosophy or within psychology. And so they wanted to have a philosopher on board to help provide uh, theoretical guidance for the empirical investigation. Uh, and so I think to their credit, they, they saw a tremendous value in seeing philosophers and scientists working together and having conversations about the, the theoretical foundations of the kinds of concepts we're wanting to explore. And so that's where I, I, I really started thinking about intellectual humility was with that first job with this, this grant uh, on the science of intellectual humility. And after that grant, there was a subsequent sister grant called the the, uh, the the philosophy and theology of intellectual humility, and that was at St. Louis University. And I was a liaison between those two. Uh, and from that, those two experiences, that's what led us eventually to this this online course, um, because I, there was a realization that there was all this extremely important, valuable research that's being done from these two grants, and. Uh, but there wasn't a great mechanism; it didn't seem to me for for disseminating that information broadly, and so the uh, the one of the driving forces for this, the course eventually was to uh, get some of that research out there to as many people as possible.
0: My kudos! I, I just I do believe that a large part of the difficulty when it comes to speaking about spirituality, religion, particularly is uh, an absence of intellectual humility and uh, and that's particularly true uh, I think with uh, people who people of faith, forgive me I mean I'm not pointing at people of faith, but for example, we had Michael Shermer on this show and we talked to Michael at great length about why he gave up his proselytizing in the name of Christianity and became, you know, the renowned agnostic atheist that he is today. He, um, you know, everything about Shermer um, is, there's nothing hard and fast. He, as far as I'm concerned, represents intellectual humility. So when we got up the show, my wife, Ravinder, who's on the show with me today, uh, said to me, you know, if, if all the atheists were like Michael Shermer, uh, I'd become an atheist. <laughs> Isn't that right,
1: Ravinder? Uh, yeah, I've got great respect for the guy. He thinks very clearly. And, and, and
0: so sometimes when you get that hard-nosed person, they could even be right. But <clears throat> the way they present themselves is just so off-putting that I think that creates part of the confusion and conflict Uh That we see and maybe even why some people, particularly the younger generation, are moving away from religion and moving away from God. I don't think it's I don't think it's the arguments like, uh, well, if God is omnipotent, can he build a rock so large he can not lift it? I don't think it's that as much as it is the Bible pounding, thumping arrogance that goes with it. Your thoughts on that, sir?
2: I think that's exactly right, Elton. I, I think what happens is, is when we're pe- when people are extremely hard nosed about their various religious or anti religious beliefs, it, it kind of militarizes the opposition. It makes people want to dig in their heels and, and fight back, or sort of ig- ignore the whole conversation entirely. And so I, I I know in my own experience, when you have people who are extremely dogmatic and extremely arrogant about their views and their data, there's no way they're going to uh, push against it. Well. There's no way they're going to give it up. Well, then that sort of there's something in our psychology, I think, that makes us want to be uh, push against that somewhat. I mean, and this can happen in I think silly ways. And and maybe this is going to be, you know, revealing more about my own psychology. But when I was in college, I had a a roommate who absolutely loved the band U2, and and I Uh liked the band U2 just fine. But he loved the band U two. Every, I mean, he learned how to play the guitar to play more U two songs and so on and so forth. And and you know, you, you knew if you were in the car with him uh, that you were going to be listening to U two. And again, I, I am fine. I like U two, but uh, at that point, I started wanting to get sort of pushed back, and I started to dislike U two more at that point, just because he was so completely obsessed with it. And so I I've, I casually wonder if there's something about human psychology that makes us sort of want to push against that kind of hard nosed line.
0: Well, I believe there is, absolutely. Uh, Let let me take us a bit of a a different direction here now. um, Well, not a different direction, I guess. I want everybody out of this show to know where they can learn more about this course. And so to that end, flesh out for us, if you will, what your intention was with the course, what they can expect if they take this course, and why they should take the
2: course. Great. Thank you. Uh, So like I started saying uh, earlier, one of the motivations for this course was uh, all of this amazing research that was being done through these grants at the Fuller Graduate School of Psychology and at St. Louis University. And uh, there was extremely timely, powerful research being done. But the worry was that unless you had a subscription to various academic journals or had a, a really good academic library nearby, you, you wouldn't be able to have any idea that this lecture was, was going on, that this was being developed, that there were these exciting conversations going on. And uh, the University of Edinburgh has been a, a pioneer in putting together these massive open online courses, these MOOCs, as they're sometimes called. Right. And so they had a, a Introduction to Philosophy MOOC that was an enormous success. Uh, they now have a, a course on uh, philosophy, science, and religion that's going really well. And so uh, I was able to collaborate uh, with uh, some friends there, uh, and we, we were that's where we went with with the course to develop this course to bring some exciting research that was going on at these other projects that, at Fuller and at St. Louis University uh, to bring them out to, to everybody. And and what the, the course is is broken up into three mini courses. Uh, the first is on the the theory of intellectual humility. So this is where we're talking about okay, what is intellectual virtue in general. What is intellectual humility? How do we go about measuring something like intellectual humility? And then the second mini course, the mini MOOC, if you will, is on the science of intellectual humility. So this is where we start asking questions about how does emotion affect our ability to be intellectually humble? How does human cognition uh, affect it? How do we develop intellectual humility? Is there something we can do to promote humility in in children, sex? And the final section, the final mini MOOC uh, for, the, for the course is on application of antisocial humility. And so here we're asking questions about, okay, how should we handle disagreement amongst peers? Right? So if you're disagreeing with someone who, for all you can tell, is, is every bit as intelligent and as, as informed and uh, as availed of all the relevant evidence as you are, uh, what do we do when they disagree with us? Right? That's a really important question, it seems to me. And, and you we know, do other questions about, you know, who do we trust? How does intellectual humility affect our ability to listen to testimony uh, to what people tell us? Because, again, this is, I mean, this is something we're sort of circling back to what we talked about at the beginning. Is it's very easy for people to tune out and to just dis- dismiss um, any opposing views as, as fake news and that they can just go find alternative facts or, or whatever, right? Uh, and so we get, uh, dodging any sort of real engagement. And So I think that's a really bad thing if, we, if we're not willing to... To listen to each other uh, I, I think it's, it's a very bad thing to end up where you are only talking amongst yourself uh, amongst yourselves you're only um, only ever engaging with different sources of news that are going to affirm what you already believe so on and so forth and finally the, the final practical uh, element in the third mini MOOC is uh, what should we do about religion uh, can we maintain firm religious belief in, in light of, of, of pluralism uh, and does that sort of is that at odds with
0: intellectual possible. Professor, is there a test that someone could take? Uh, I did a bit of a search and I wasn't able to actually find an online test. Sure. But is there a test uh, or some measurement that one could use to determine uh, for themselves uh, whether, whether or not they tended to be arrogant in areas, uh, a form of implicit bias test that is about implicit arrogance
2: sure sure uh so th- there's a lot going on in that in that area uh and it's an exciting area to be paying attention to because more and more research is going to be uh coming out there uh so there's different things you, you could try to look for uh you could try to find tests that will test uh your level of, of dogmatism right so how how willing are you to um uh, engage with opposing views uh sometimes this can come about in sort of need for closure Right? Um, are you willing to willing to let there be sort of lingering mystery about a question, or do you feel like you have to come down on an answer right now? Um, probably the most popular uh, and easiest to get to test would be what's called the Hexaco model for for personality structure, um, and the the H in Hexaco stands for on, on honesty and humility, uh, and that will give you a sense for um, where you stand there now trying to develop a measure for intellectual humility um, or humility in general is is notoriously tricky, right? Um, Self-reports of of humility seem to be self-defeating. So if you ask someone that they're humble and they say, yeah, they are, doesn't that mean they're arrogant then? And so uh, it can be sort of a tricky business, but I think the Hexaco model is probably one of the best ones to look at at this point.
0: All right. I have to ask you this because you brought it up and we only have about one minute left. Uh, you have compared intellectual humility with dogmatism. You've said they're compatible, yeah, uh, how is that so?
2: Well, I mean so this is I guess a somewhat controversial claim, uh, but I'm wanting to say that it, it, there are times where it's okay to be dogmatic, um, and so the, one of the worries here is if we if we develop a psychological measure of intellectual humility, say, that just sees it as the opposite of dogmatism uh, well then it, there might be times where you, we should be dogmatic. And so that measure is going to be missing that. Uh, it's going to be conflating, it seems to me, intellectual humility with servility. right? So if someone's just never committed to anything at all, well, that might not be a, a particularly good gotcha. take.
0: And I, 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 I'm sorry, but we're we're just out of time. Sure. I want everybody to know the book is Elec- Intellectual Humility. Go get a copy of it. Do go to the Coursera course. Thank you, Professor Uh, for your work and your willingness to share it with us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment, and I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Hope you'll join us again next week, same time, wherever you are in the world. Until then, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com.
3: If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Elden at EldenTaylor.com.